Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Science Yale Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Abhilasha Purwar, founder and CEO of Blue Sky Analytics, to talk about using satellite data for climate intelligence. Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather. I'm really glad to be here. Abby, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Blue Sky Analytics? So my name is Abhilasha Purwar. I have been in the climate space, honestly, since 2010. So it's going to be a full 13 years soon. I went to an engineering school in India called IIT, and I studied chemical and materials engineering. And I was really involved in like how to process dye pollution, like the textile pollution, and use uh, different kinds of photooxidation to break down those dyes and clean that polluted water. From there, I moved into solar cells and how to make different kinds of solar cells and made flexible solar cells when I was like 20 years old in the lab and kept on working in that side of research. And somehow I found myself working with the Indian government and with two now uh, economists who are now Nobel laureates, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, Jamil Poverty Action Lab, where we were consulting different Indian ministries, especially Ministry of Environment on a series of projects. So yeah, like my journey was like really taking me from one environment and climate problems, that is technical problems, uh, problems around building technology solutions to then moving into more policy aspect of it and working with governments and looking at scale up or different incentives to implement different solutions. So to get deeper into the whole thing, I went to Yale Environment School in 2015 and I uh, focused on environment and economics and like really started going to more like now the financial element of it. After graduation, I worked with a private equity fund in Connecticut into how to deploy different kinds of capital, different sources of capital with different risk appetite in various kinds of projects for clean energy transition. And with that whole journey across different spectrums in 2020, I was like, I think there is like a role for something like data and technology, which can be more catalytic because as different frameworks were emerging, climate was no longer just a nonprofit just an activist exercise that was coming into the mainstream of business, financing, decision-making, whether we should build a real estate project here or no, what should be different kind of like, you know, loan rates be, what should different insurance policies be. And I think another element was like how climate risk was coming into this thing as like a real financial number, which it was simply never like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people wouldn't think of climate change as a liability, but that was happening. And I really thought that at that moment, there was a room to build something, a different kind of organization, almost like what Bloomberg Terminal did in 1990s. We set out to do that in 2020s. So what all does Blue Sky Analytics do? And and why is this important for tackling climate change? So what Blue Sky really does is effectively monitor the pulse of the planet. Like we look across at different kinds of like, let's say, carbon projects or water, uh, you know, risk or flood risk drought risk in different places. We do wildfire monitoring. We monitor different kinds of infrastructure assets, like how solar projects are being developed or how infrastructure projects are being developed. Uh, So using satellite data, we monitor the planet in 
very short and simple terms. But the way it like really links us to environment and climate through either carbon projects or through asset monitoring or through climate risk analytics. And when we look into something, let's just pick, you know, a forest. So there is a large tract of land, which is either a national park or a managed timberland by a company. This is a natural resource. Now, this natural resource could be depleted because of due to various reasons. It could be enhanced and improved, and it might have a series of risks like wildfire risk, and thereby to monitor what was happening in past, what is happening right now, what may happen in future becomes quite important. That's what we do. Previously, what we found was that multiple organizations were doing this work in-house, and a lot of it was in silos, and there was some inefficiency, so to speak, that was flowing through the system. In addition, we also looked into the space market and what was happening in the satellite data industry, just like the explosion of our iPhones and phone sensors, phone cameras, resolution cost, same thing was happening in you know space industry. But that data was not being really analyzed and used. So we found that there was a lot of data out there. There was a lot of data with various kinds of satellite companies But the analytics, the intelligence from it, the information was not going to the stakeholders. So we decided to really build in that middle, what you can call is like the neck of the funnel. Let's take data from different kinds of sources. Let's process, analyze it, make models on it, do different machine learning algorithms, different kinds of AI, and give different kind of outputs to people, which they can use. So something which is accessible, ready to use, like whether we talk about, let's say, wildfire risk or flood risk, or just flood verification, or measurement of damage, all of these final products, so that you don't have to go out there, figure out which satellite data to buy, buy it, analyze it, build up your data scientist team. You can just like think of that work done by somebody else and you know do the final work yourself. Why it's important for tackling climate change. I think that saying that we have, like what you don't measure, you cannot solve it, kind of really applies here because... The way most of us perceive climate change, UI, and the reason why there is so much of discrepancy slash so much doubt, and you have, even in 2023, you have people who don't believe climate change is real, is because we've made it very picture-heavy or video-heavy and tweet-heavy sector rather than, or sort of emotionally-driven sector rather than more data-driven sector. When you have concrete numbers that, hey, look, in Canada, this has been wildfires in the past 50 years, and this was a wildfire in 2023 in the season alone. And this kind of really proves that there is something else going on. These numbers clearly prove. I think then you really build out a more cogency, a more like sort of harmony across different stakeholders. January of this year was riled with all the controversies in carbon markets. You might be very aware, like anybody who's been in climate sector, I think the Guardian's article on carbon markets got probably one of the highest views and so on. Everybody was talking about that and everybody was attacking each other. Oh, you are more right than I am more right. And it's really become this like, you know, race to who's more right. But I think at some point, like numbers, methodologies, algorithms, which are fairly like, you know, which might have some bias here and there, but are fairly mathematical, fairly objective, solves that kind of finger pointing. And that's why I think what we do and what multiple organizations like us, they do in the space of climate change is very important because objectivity and numbers ground us and they kind of serve as some sort of a truth and some sort of objectivity against all kinds of like these emotionally driven debates. 
So what role does machine learning play in your modern technology? Maybe if you have some examples of the types of models that you train and the powerful insights that you're able to get from them. Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, just like there's so many pictures that are taken by different satellites of our planet. It's quite impossible to analyze those pictures if we were not to use these different tools that are available to us. Like, you know, if we were to... If you are from the GIS sector, you might remember like, you know, 10 years ago, you would take your tiles, put them on the software, like, you know, our GIS, draw them out boundaries and then do certain kinds of analysis. And now a lot of it that has been sort of like changed by automatic codes, that code goes and learns. So for instance, what we have in Blue Sky is like, you know, we would scan the satellite images and then learn that this is the water boundary. This is the water land boundary. This is how this shape is changing. This is how this depth measurement is happening. So there is statistical models and then there is machine learning models. And both combined, like, I think really allows us the scale to do this kind of analysis for the entire planet rather than for a very small geographical area in the kind of, I would say, volume and cost. So the machine learning benefit, and I think there is a quote by somebody, which is that what machines are able to do in one day, it would take human eye like 10,000 years or something to do that. Obviously, now what happens is there is errors and biases and inaccuracies that sometimes these models do prop up with. Sometimes the models identify something which is not a water body as water body. And also there's definitely a very important room for correction, building it out, solving biases, improving accuracies, really having that discussion around the algorithm and methodology and having almost like that community engagement around improving models and accuracies. But the matter of the fact is that today in 2023, we can talk about monitoring the entire planet because we have both like AI, machine learning and cloud computing with us. We could not have done this 10 years ago. What are some other examples of models you can build? You, you talked about water boundaries there. That there's some other common models that your your team is building. Oh my God, we have so many. <laughs> we monitor forests, for instance. So we count number of trees. We monitor deforestation. We monitor wildfires in a forest. So like really a lot of models around forest. We are also now in the process of building model around biodiversity of forest using different kinds of different spectrums of satellite data that is like still in work. So, you know, it's going to take some time for us to get it to that, like time and capital both to get it to that level. Yeah, so like forest, water, we started our journey with monitoring air quality. That was like our very first model. And now we also work a lot on infrastructure development. So roads and highways and real estate, solar farms, different things like that. Just, I think overall, what simple statistical model plus cloud computing can do is I think, Tremendous. You add a layer of machine learning onto it and it becomes almost like 1000x. And all these models are largely based on satellite data. What kinds of challenges do you encounter in working with this form of data? Forest challenges. I think the challenge of satellite data is very heavy. It's crude. It's not like a simple format of data has largely been solved in our team. The challenge we face really is around procurement. Most companies in upstream kind of almost like guarded the data. So there is a lot of data, a lot of pictures that are taken by, I think there's the thousands plus satellites in the orbit, but procuring it is not always that easy. Building partnerships to get the data streams is not that always easy. So I think the human element of accessing satellite data 
is probably more challenging than the type of the data or processing it or how heavy or you know difficult it is. That is definitely one challenge. I think the second challenge is especially with rise of more and more private sector companies. So when we talk, you're also from the remote sensing field, if I'm not wrong. That's right. Yeah. So when we look at like data from uh, NASA or European Space Agency, one data set has multiple users, right? Like lots of academic users, lots of users in the open source uh, realm. So any discussion around any sort of bias error is quite out there. So for data, like more the people use it, better the quality of that data becomes. For other sources of data, I mean, I would even say like ISRO's data is not always that easily accessible which renders the discussion around the quality biases errors like slightly poorer. And that's another challenge with a lot of private data that you get the images, but there might be a bias in those images. The sensors might not be calibrated properly. You might have to correct for something. And because there's just not that many users, like sometimes you simply don't know what you don't know. So I think from the perspective of consistency, even though the public data might be lower resolution, it is highly consistent and it has high amount of documentation and usage and community around it. Private data, visible spectrum has been fairly easy for us to absorb, use, integrate with our workflows. Other spectrums we find just some challenges around like, I think each of the stream companies should work really harder on building out their downstream analytics community because more companies like us or organizations, universities like us, in the downstream sector can use their data and analyze their data and build like sort of like body of knowledge around it, more they will find that their data is valuable. But instead, the current business model, venture funding, everything, it leads to like almost a guarding of that data. It's like, oh, it's so expensive. I'm only going to sell you for like $1,000 a tile. I think having certain amount of data streams almost like openly available to the community. It could be of like non-important assets or something of that sort, would just build out like a more discussions around like any sort of biases, inaccuracies. Hey, this is showing this, but it is not this. Those aspects, which sometimes many of us are like left to work within silo. So yeah, procurement. And then second, like lack of community around usage of private data. Yeah, so related to the, the lack of community with satellite data, open source tools are ubiquitous in AI, along with many publicly available data sets for benchmarking algorithms. What role does open data and open source play in the climate crisis? Very important. I mean, pretty much like anybody who's making a more, let's say, higher resolution model, higher resolution higher frequency model. Let's say we build something which had a resolution of like every day compared to another open data or open source model, which was resolution of like quarterly or monthly or something. Data sets which are widely acceptable, which are openly available, the community knows them. Even if let's say their resolution or frequency is lower, they serve as a benchmark. So when you're improving, you're building out a model, you can go back and say like, okay, my outcomes are parallel. Like otherwise, without those models, like there will be almost like no way to calibrate against no way to benchmark against, right? So I think a lot more research is needed in the open source, in the ground truthing realm. Let, let me pick an example of monitoring a forest, right? So multiple groups across the world, Blue Sky, various very ven- heavily venture funded companies, public agencies, foundations, nonprofits, universities, 
are mapping forests across the world. Now, what happens is that, let's say if UNC, University of North Carolina, has mapped the forest and has put that data publicly available, then what Blue Sky can do is that I'm doing, let's say, a bunch of forest in India. I can run my model on the UNC forest, see what my result is compared to the UNC result. And if it is really, really widely off, I know that my model is like, is is horrible <laughs> in simple words, right? So I can start to work on it. I can improve it. I can account for that, okay, this timber is different than the timber available in India and so on and so forth. But when there's just simply no data because everybody's guarding their models very close to their chest, everybody's keeping their data private, then it really becomes very difficult to calibrate against anything. So I think previously the model in this by model, I mean like a business or the organizational model in the climate industry was majorly universities and nonprofits. Now, whatever like the technicalities of those uh, technical competencies of those organizations, but everything was in some format in the form of a peer-reviewed paper and everybody was calibrating against each other, right? There has been a tremendous rise of climate tech companies in the last five years where the multiple private organizations, multiple think tanks, multiple technical or techno NGOs, so to speak, or 501c3 tech companies or B Corps and so on in this space. I would say that if everybody starts to put just a little bit, like 1% of their work in the sort of like digital public commons kind of a thing, that would be very, very tremendously helpful to everybody in the community because we can all like improve our models and calibrate it. Earth is really, really large. Not a single organization, not a single company would ever be able to really solve all of the global like demand. <laughs> the demand is way higher than supply. So the bottleneck of building out that trust within the community, building out that trust for the community with other stakeholders can really be solved if the community was to collaborate with each other. Yeah, the progress of AI we've seen over the last 10 or so years, I think part of the reason it's been so rapid is because of the open source and open data and all that. And these large language models, the, the pace just keeps increasing. If open source and open data could help make progress towards fighting climate change a whole lot faster, that's our world could definitely benefit from that. Definitely. I, I mean, honestly, we have been thinking off late and this would be probably the first public podcast. I still need to run it by our investors and rest of the community. But within Blue Sky, we are like really thinking about essentially either opening a foundation or one of those organizations whereby a lot of analysis that we've done, which is currently behind the paywall, we can bring it ahead of the paywall and we can have it readily available for pretty much the entire world. So there are some assets which belong to a client, right? That's a private asset. I cannot technically release its information. It's on the client to release the information. But then there are some assets which are just public assets. Let's say a forest, a public forest, a national park. It's a public asset. Now, obviously, you can't always have all of the analysis of all the public assets because there's a cloud cost. There's a cost of procuring satellite data and everything. There's a cost of engineers. They have to have their salaries. So it cannot be technically completely free. But if the, like, you know, just base level, no margin added funding is figured out for a digital public good. And that public good can be available for the public at large for pretty much anybody, almost like a Google Maps or something to be able to access, to be able to use, to be able to something very simple. You know, we had flooding in Delhi uh, last month. And even right now, the state of Himachal Pradesh, which is just a few miles north of where I live, north of Delhi, has had like immense amount of flooding. I think in one month, they got like more than 400 millimeters of rainfall. I think one city got like 
100 mm plus rainfall in a single day. So all the water bodies, all the rivers are at like maximum capacity. They're like overflowing. Yamuna was at all time historical high level, I think a month ago. Some of this data, sure, like your governments and your news channels and your national weather agencies are able to inform via news. But if somebody else could join in there and inform people like, hey, the river is at an all-time high. And if there were to be this much amount of rainfall, the probability is that this much area is going to be submerged. And this information was available publicly seven days prior. People can move. Like this information is powerful. It can save lives. And I find it really sad that some of this information is available with us behind paywalls and we don't have the resources to either put it ahead of paywall, make it accessible to people, do a little more research work onto it, make those models more accurate, make those models more developed and advanced. So I think there is tremendous role, especially within climate of open data, open source. Something which is a challenge in this industry though is that open source and open data is typically extremely like foundation slash nonprofit model. Technology works the best. If you might have seen within with venture-backed companies like engineers, the incentives, data scientists, like, you know, a lot of that. So, and both those models are growing. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but both those sectors exist and both of them are doing great work. So probably finding a middle ground structure where both can collaborate more actively without like those typical stereotypes that we have about each other's sectors could be like really beneficial. So you mentioned use cases related to water and related to forests. Are there other powerful use cases in machine learning and geospatial data that we have yet to see and that you would like to see? I think currently we have not, we have only touched on the surface of what is possible with the use cases in water and forest. Like we've just touched the surface, both like forest, water, wildfire. I would say the penetration of that analytics, that intelligence within the market, with the stakeholders, people who can actually take decisions basis of it, with the lay lay person, with somebody. For instance, there was a wildfire in Greece, and it's fairly easy for high-quality machine learning model with geospatial data to do a seven, 10-day-out prediction and inform the people who are taking flights to Greece and booking in resorts that, hey, there is high likelihood of wildfire in that region and don't go. Like it's quite simple. So we do have that kind of technology available with us today, but the the challenge has been in penetration and adoptability of that technology with the right kind of stakeholders, decision makers, people who can do something with that information. Information is fine, but information is as good as the person who has access to it and who has agency to use that information for the good, right? And I think that's where we really lack. My personal belief is that taking that information, the final user who can do something about it is really a very private sector forte because you can take that information to airlines, to insurances, to resort owners. The incentives are different if we were to move that dissemination of information to a typically nonprofit model. It may or may not be adopted by people because you have to figure out the incentive why people will do something. We've established that the incentive of people will do something because it's just good. It may or may not be enough. If that was the case, you would have solved climate change a decade ago or something. So I think the real game in the industry is going to be for use cases of machine learning and open data and geospatial data is adoption, is like 
it actually being used by the stakeholders. You'd be surprised to know that most electric utilities across the world, most water utilities across the world, most cities for city planning, most disaster management agencies, they, they're not using the best technology today, both like I would say in developed countries and developing countries, US, North America, Europe, India, like, you know, all of those geographies, technologies, their adoption is still, you know, some years to go. Thinking more broadly about what you're doing at Blue Sky, how do you measure the impact of your technology? So we recently actually came up with a singular KPI. We had a series of multiple KPIs and we realized that that's just not the best way to measure. So our singular KPI is area under monitoring. We think that more area we're monitoring, that's like the achievement, like more area that various clients or various stakeholders are paying for. We're procuring satellite data for them. We are doing the analysis of them. And we are, obviously, it's our job to make the analysis better, get more and more accuracy, better resolution, better frequency, essentially making a better product for your clients and your users. That goes without saying, but having like that product, more of that product in very simple ways, I think is one of the singular best KPIs. I think if the whole foundation thing or the digital public asset thing that I've been thinking about and that flies off, then we'll have another KPI, which will be how much area under monitoring is within digital public assets and what is the API sort of like API consumption or how many people are hitting our APIs? Is it reaching millions, two millions, three millions, different kinds of people who are hitting those APIs. So we would start to segment in those, but yeah, like more area under monitoring and more utility of those APIs by various kinds of people. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Oh my God, I'm actually fairly junior founder when it comes to this whole realm of AI and startups. So I think for, you know, I've done, I would say like we've done a lot of mistakes. So we're in our fourth year of our journey. And I would say that our biggest error or a mistake I would not do in future, which is something that probably other founders coming into the space could look into is, uh, I would say uh, like, ship out the product faster and give it to different kinds of customers quicker. So I think we uh, took a little bit of more time in pursuit of like more accuracy, quality, things like that. And obviously that matters, but I would have, if I were to do it differently, I would send like literally the crappiest version, like that model that we had discarded to a bunch of people for just reference. You don't have to use it. You don't have to pay for it, but just for your reference, you're working on this. We'll keep on improving. But look at this horrible thing that I made and just have a general comment. But I would say that one of the reasons why we ended up not doing that was because clients or users or general users, because we are in the era of like, you know, technology products like Google, Facebook. So we have, we all have very high expectation, right? When we see an MVP, we want the MVP to look like this, like beautiful, you know, smooth product. So I think that was one of the reasons why, because we would put it as like bold and really caps like disclaimer, this is only work in progress. Take it with a pinch of salt. People would not read it. But I would say like, you know, getting this to people faster, getting your product to people faster would be my biggest advice. And finally, where do you see the impact of Blue Sky in three to five years? Oh my God, that's a very difficult question. I think if you're able to get both, we're doing pretty good on, we've identified a couple of areas where we have like, we're solving like a direct customer need. Ironically, that need is outside of climate change and sustainability, but it is still a big customer need and we are solving it. So if that 
area keeps on growing, that will be able to provide us with like a very consistent and sustainable revenue. While on the other side, if you're able to get like more digital public assets out, my dream honestly would be to have all the rivers, all the forests in the world and like sort of like as a digital public asset available to everybody. So that would be my dream. If you're able to get there in like three to five years, that would be unbelievably fantastic. This has been great. Abby, your team at Blue Sky Analytics is doing some really interesting work in tackling climate change. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Oh, so we have a website called blueskyhq.io. But if you write Blue Sky Analytics, we pop up. You can find me on LinkedIn as Abhilasha Purvar. And I frequently comment about different kinds of things on LinkedIn and Twitter. But I'm also writing a couple of books related to climate change. So hope to have them out soon. And then I'll share them with you. And maybe you can give me a shout out and then people can read further along. Perfect. I look forward to it. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Heather. It was great talking to you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.